Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. I'm Ian Stasikevich, a contributing writer for American Cinematographer Magazine. In this installment, I'll be talking with Oscar-winning director of photography Guillermo Navarro about his involvement with Hellboy 2, The Golden Army. And by the way, this is the fifth film Navarro and director Guillermo del Toro have worked on together. Previous collaborations include Kronos, The Devil's Backbone, Pan's Labyrinth, for which Navarro earned himself an Oscar, and the first Hellboy movie. This is going to be a spoiler-free interview, but you should definitely check out the movie anyway. It's a lot of fun. The interview begins now. Mr. Navarro, it's been four years since the last Hellboy film was released. How does it feel to be back? Uh, we, we thought that we were going to be doing this earlier, that, the, that we were going to be encountering the, the experience of doing the sequel earlier, that, but it took, it, it, did take, it, it took four years to do it. It came also in a moment where we were also stronger and better filmmakers, and, uh, and we have grown in the process as well. I mean, this is the next movie that we did after Pan's Labyrinth, after all. Uh, one thing that I've noticed about comic book movies is that some of them try to crib the look of their source material. Uh, but the Hellboy movies look almost nothing like Mike Mignola's Hellboy comic books. It was very clear in the first Hellboy that the, the ingredients of the style, let's say, were already placed by Mignola. There was an aesthetic for Hellboy that was set. The work that Del Toro and I did in, in the conception or the translation into film images came about, yes, with the original ingredients of the, of the comic book, but, but it was, let's say, enhanced and we made it grow and we made it be alive. What are some of the differences between the first film and this one? The, the movie is much more complex narratively, and, and the story is, is much... It's, it's not about introducing the characters and how they came about. They're there, and now they are dealing with a new, with a new story. And I think the, the story is complex enough, and it has its own cosmology and, and, and world that, that it made it very, very engaging. It, it, it became more of a character movie for us in that sense. So. It, and that's, I think, one of the very strong aspects of Hellboy 2 is that it reaches very, very intimate moments, very emotional moments. It's not just a comic explosion of, of action and, and things that are just happening. No, you go into the characters and there's uh, many narratives playing constantly in the movie. So we're in the, we're in the middle of a sequence that it's all about suspense and, and there's another narrative that is the dialogue between them that has to do with, absolutely with their intimacy. In Hellboy 2, there's new characters, new spaces, new environments, and, and the story drives you know, in, in, in different directions. So we had to address Hellboy 2 as a, as a movie on its own and not as a, as a sequel in that sense where a franchise is completely set up and then goes. Even though Hellboy was still Hellboy, has and, and Liz is Liz and, and Ape Sapien is Ape Sapien. But there were there were new characters and there are new environments to 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 work. When you're watching the movie, uh, there's this feeling that you're in the middle of this apocalyptic romantic comedy. That is what it's a movie. What it's what it's really about. 
And uh, so that is what, what, it is a movie, finally, it's of the human condition again. Even though they're, they're, it's a movie with monsters and Del Toro says all the time, it's a movie that's very personal to him. It's a theme that is very personal to him. And what, is, what is the essence of us and what is, uh, what, what is going to become? And what, do we, what, the, what are the choices we make? And that's what defines you as a as a as a man and, and or as a woman and 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 so it is it is it's it's not just an entertaining piece in that sense. I've seen the movie, and as far as entertaining films go, there's a lot happening. There's a huge upgrade in the action between Hellboy two and the first one. I mean, I think the 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 performance of those fights are extraordinary. Well, and the way that they're photographed as well. Uh, there's one sequence that sticks in my mind uh, is the sequence at the auction house where Hellboy and the BPRD are being swarmed by these little piranha-like fairy creatures. The camera shakes when Hellboy fires his gun, and the fairy guts are getting all over the lens like bugs on a windshield. You are a participant. You are there with them. It's not, it's not this vision of we are registering from the distance something that's going on. No, we, the camera gets involved and, and that's what makes those images translate into emotions and to, so it is a sensorial experience. You're there. The camera is very much part of the, of the, of the sequence always. It's a, it's a camera that's constantly in search, it's looking for, it's participating, it's, it's not just capturing from the distance. It's a camera that gets that gets very very much involved in the which makes make, which makes that they work very complicated because it, you see every little inch of those sets and from every perspective and so it is a very challenging um, choice. But we're very very happy with the result. There's there's a kind of visual thread that seems to run throughout the film and that's the idea of looks within looks. Uh, one environment within the other. Uh, you see it in the BPRD headquarters with Hellboy's bedroom, and then you have Broom's library, uh, and the cold kind of very clinical corridors in between. Uh, and then my favorite set, which is the uh, Elves' Lair in the uh, in the old uh, train station. That sets a, a whole look to what their world is, and it's a very it's a very rich, golden, textured, it's a place where you want to be. It is, it is this thing that is very earthy and that belongs to what, what, you, what would you like to, the space that you would like that only good things take place and it, it, or, or that, that, that humankind could, could relate to that. But it's, um, it is basically a place that it's that it's that it is a combination of a, of leftovers of an industrial world, but with a character of their own. That that space speaks of what what kind of creatures these are, and what they're looking for, or where they belong, etc. So they have this warmth to it, and it's very golden and it's very attractive in that sense. And it's also a little sad, like these creatures are in the autumn of their years, so to speak. Even, even it, it's the, the settings of Islam, it's in that point, there is a very strong quality for them. It, it, is, it is a space where, yes, I mean, 
it, it, it is the space where, where the prince announces that he's, he has, he's coming with this decision. He has that piece of the crown that now is going to allow him to, to, to make them again who they were and they, they claim what, what, is, what is roughly there. And um, it, it is a very warm environment. There are other environments of them that are very cold. For instance, the place where the prince practice in the very beginning of the movie. It's also connected with this underworld. I mean, there's a train, underground train that goes by, and there's, you know, there are in, uh, surviving in these places. And that was a great scene because it makes you believe that you're in the middle of this sort of medieval set piece. And then suddenly you realize that you are in the city. One scene and a lot of people are talking about is the troll market. And this is the scene where Hellboy and the BPRD uh, go to track down the origin of the tooth fairies. And it's, it's, it's a fantastic scene. Uh, it's huge. Uh, there's hundreds of creatures and uh, it's, it's very atmospheric. It's very impressive. That was a very, very challenging place to be. It is a... Uh... <sighs> It was an underground quarry that uh, it was just really what the, the leftover of the space was. There were huge columns of rock that were holding that. And then all these corridors were, they, they worked around and, and to, to, you know, to, to chip rocks. And, and, and then the set was built, the set pieces were built around those walls. The fact that we had to address a set like that where there was, it was a complete world to, to, to show, a new world to show. So it was a complete, let's say, reality or to, to create. And that was, of course, very much said by the by the set dressing itself and the, the and the monsters and the this and the makeup etc etc but but the ability to for the camera to be able to travel around and shoot action scenes and dialogue scenes and moving and, and finding and etc made it very very complicated we had to incorporate the, our lighting basically from we had to rig every little piece of equipment and for that meant, you know, to make holes in the rock and put up this and put up that and a little pipe. And so the lighting became really part of the set. And many times you see the lights in the, sh in the shots. We tried to do, we tried to, to make them, uh, let's say that we, we sort of dress them to the, to the look. They don't look like a typical movie light. And then we had to create like different zones of different colors. They, they go through the spaces some, sometimes very, very drawn through the green or to the very strong reds or it, it, all this is combined. So the characters go in and out of all this very wild and wide palette of color. And, that, and, and we decided that, that was going to be just part of it. That it's it was part it was part of the of the chaotic look to the space anyway, so we embraced that we embraced of going full into 
to take uh, chances and risks and push it to, to very strong limits. And we were changing things and working things as, as the shots came about, and because they are very, very complicated shots. So you also had to accommodate the, the need of, of the space and what was going on on, on, the, on the scene. And uh, that made it sometimes, you know, it made us do very, very crazy stuff of moving things around while the shot was taking place. And, and, but it made it, it made it fun and it made it uh, a very surprisingly interesting look. It was very, very good to, to at the end to, that we, we, we knew we had, we had something very, very strong by then, which we didn't know when we were, when we were stepping in and, and, and pre-rigging it. Except for the, the map shop, where it's, where it's a more friendly environment and it has a very particular look of, it's like a period piece set, that one. So we kept that one in a, in, in a, in a, in a level of aesthetic that, or that kind of aesthetic that, that was separated from the, from the rest, but still belonging to this, to this world. Then there's the scene where Hellboy fights the forest elemental. That, is, that was an outdoor set that was built at the studios as well. We basically worked in this new studio set, Corda Studios that are like an hour drive from Budapest. Mm -hmm. And there were brand new studios and all that worked, worked really great. Using an existing uh, street, let's say, and then they had to pay to, to create another street. So they build the street. They build the facade of all those buildings and just enough behind the windows uh, to, to allow me to put uh, some window treatment and a light here and a light there, etc. to have a sense that there was a, a, a New York street in, in one of these areas of New York, right? And uh, at night, so whatever was left there, and, and it was a lot of that was, you know, designed around the entrance to the troll market, which was this meat locker area, and the hotel sign, because most of the action was going to be wrapped around the, the hotel sign itself. And of course, the the street itself, the runs in the where the elemental breaks breaks the the ground from. We had to have very very big construction cranes with a massive amount of uh, of light uh, pushing in both directions, and, and and really the camera would have to be working around, and, and, and a lot of work had to be spent in in keeping the flare off the lens. So many times, since we knew that some, from certain piece up of the set was going to be built digitally, we, there's a lot of, uh, of flags that were hanged from cranes, etc., just to avoid the flare. And, but the camera is moving constantly. It was a very, very, that was probably the most challenging besides the troll market, because the scope of it, the, the size of those shots were tremendous. Of course, the elemental sequence is, is was very interesting to do because the main character, the main was not there, which was the elemental. So it, w it was really dealing with a visual effects sequence where the understanding of what was going on in each little piece of it, the layering of all the action and all the moments that we had to put together, embracing this this character that 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 was not there, and then, but 
but you had to have him interact lighting-wise and action-wise and phys with physical effects, etc., as if he was there. There's one shot in particular that, that are, it was a huge accomplishment of when Hellboy is climbing up the letters of the hotel sign and the camera is going up and around him and then finds an end position where you see the hotel sign with him and his back and you see the elemental on the entire street. And uh, there was no way to do that shot with a crane, for instance. It was too high and, and to have the ability to come around, etc. So we did it with a cable and a stabilized head, a Scorpio stabilized head. And the cable was through a pulley attached to a golf cart. And the, the golf cart would drive, send the camera up, and then with, with two lines we were able to come around the sign just pulling them, and and I was able to operate with a wireless system with the wheels, the the head. So it was extraordinary when, by the time we put it together, it was one of those bets that okay, this will never happen in a million years. No? When the ideas from the grip department started floating in, they were they seemed impossible to achieve, and then there it is. It's an incredible shot. Do you have a regular crew that you like to work with? I work with a very strong group of collaborators that have worked with me in many, many movies. And, uh, and it's a very particular relationship of uh, professional and personal. And um, I was able to, to bring with me my gaffer, who's David Lee, and my key grip, Rick Stribling. And they, we've done a ton of movies together. And, um, and the rest of my crew, there's uh, the focus puller, there's Juan Leiva, there's another very important character that is Carlos Miguel, which is a, a, a dolly grip that handles this little crane, that, that it's a Spanish design crane, and allows us to do this very particular camera moves. It's a little crane that the operator can be seated or the camera can be underslung, and uh, we call it La Pucci. I actually brought one, I have one myself here, and it's an incredible piece of equipment. That There's nothing like it in Hollywood. But the, the the camera's operated by a single by a single man, and and and, and you know it tracks, and then you scissor with it, and you come around, and it's a ph phenomenal piece of equipment. Then the Steadicam operator was Jaromir Sedina. For me, I, I keep them very close, and for me, it is it is my it, it is my family at work, and um, I'm, we have a very open and creative relationship. We interact. A lot, and we we're I allow them to be completely part of the of the process. Do you find that you develop a kind of shorthand between yourself and the the crew members? Absolutely, the same way that the the Toro and I have developed it, I have developed it with them. Sometimes just a look is enough to understand what has to be done. And yeah, so for me, each time that I have to do a movie where the possibility of not bringing them is it it's a possibility. I, I really have a very hard time even considering that because then it implies that, I, that you know, I just have to work three times more than, than, than I, I would because of this short kind of this understanding of what, and we've done so much together that we have a way to address many things that we've already learned and attached. And so it is, it is a very important resource for, for the work that, that we do. And also, there's a lot of, uh, besides the set in the street, 
all the work with Hellboy at the top of the H, up there with the prints up there, all those perspective shots from there, etc., are actually done on a stage against green screen. So there was a piece of the building and the H in a different space. So we had to also match whatever was going out down on, on the actual street and do it on stage and um, to, to make all that work. And, you, and when I see that movie, I, I still have to remind myself that actually, oh, we did that at a different place. Is it difficult to distance yourself from the work you do on set and just view the film as an audience member? I have the incredible ability and, and I'm so grateful about it that I can watch a movie as audience. I'm so grateful that I can do that. And I'm not watching it as a, I have to see it a couple of times not only with the movies that I make in general. If then I want to go in and try to figure out what the cinematographer did or the production designer did, I have to go back and see it. But uh, I can see I can see Hellboy. I saw it in the premiere and it was just like one of my kids watching it. You know? and, if, and I don't think of that. I don't think of what we had to go through to do this particular shot. But, and I think it has to do also with how the, 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 the language is treated, of how the, the film language engages you and, and you feel that are, you're experiencing this thing and then, and, and, and then you're completely bought into this absurd reality of these characters and, and, and they belong. Now they are somebody that, are, that you're completely familiar with and that you, you allow and accept everything that happens with them. One of the film's most striking sets is the Golden Army set. That is set, that set is one of the best looking sets, I think, of the movie. With those graphite columns and all that golden element to it and, and the gears. And it's, they're, they're all those gears that move. And you have to also shoot in, in all directions because the action is just going to be all over the place. So we, we again had to, to come up with a very complicated rig of, of lighting from above. And this was done in a, in a, in a set that is, it was a, a a sport arena that they never finished building. So now it's like this huge space, you know, with bleachers and things like that. And, and then we had the, the opportunity to, to build around a grid that they, have, that they had above, again, unfinished. All of, all of these sets, these locations are so epic. Uh, they're huge. Are you ever intimidated by the scale of your work? One of the things that that you unconsciously fight probably is that you are not overwhelmed by it. If because then the set will defeat you. The the challenge is, is just very big. And uh, you have to walk in with not even considering that that that's going to be a, a a possibility. And uh, it's not. And many times even that you do all your all the preparation you can and you do the drawings that you can and then you have a a, a rigging crew doing that and you know we escape from the set the other set and would see a test and etc etc it's really until you're there you know with your entire crew addressing a shot that you that you start dealing with the immensity of the of the challenge but uh, but I think it has to do with a uh, with an emotional dynamic of uh, not being not going that you you cannot afford to be overwhelmed by it and you just walk in and dance with it. You have to. You have to 
really embrace the the scope, the scale, and the difficulties that you're because it's not only if, if, if that and, and that is also the one of the big differences of doing just a a still shot of something, right? Because uh, you can make the lighting work for one direction, but this camera goes all, all over the place. So the lighting can only be good for certain areas, then you have to move it, or you have to hide what is bad for it. So you're constantly, it's not that you have a lighting, a lighting scheme and then it's, it works. No, once, once you're in there, the particularities of the shots that you're doing are calling for, for other, other solutions. And you have to be pretty much on, on with a very, very open mind and very broad ability to, to come up with with solutions that will not eat, you know, half of your night and and uh, and continue continue shooting because there's another old side of this that you have to stay very productive and you have to accomplish so much every day and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's a it's a very um, it's a very difficult situation. And uh, you fight many things. You fight being tired. You fight uh, lack of sleep. You're fighting the humor. You, you, the, you, your your ability to to stay tolerant with with everybody around you. To it's a very very difficult job in that sense. So that is part of what you need to walk into a set like that or any set. But these are just the skilled. The bigger the sets and the complexity of the sequence just makes the challenges much bigger. And you really don't find out how big it is and how how big of a problem you can be until you're in it. For it doesn't it's not enough to preconceive or maybe try to discuss how the shots are gonna be, because it really it's really it's like a river. Everything's on the move. Everything is moving and changing and adapting and this and that and But uh, it's all it's all worth it, and it's all uh, very very the, the 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 gratification afterwards is is tremendous. So it it is you have the drive to to keep doing it and to accomplish it. It's it's tremendous. It's a tremendous feeling. What was the most gratifying scene to shoot? Yeah, I think the Angel of Death is it's outstanding. It's one of the best looking sequences of the movie. Uh, it was very challenging to do. It was that that set was like um, uh, a cover set. So many we we went in and out of that set so many times because we were supposed to be shooting, let's say the the New York Street of the Elemental sequence, which was right outside, and then you know it would rain. So here we go into the. So it was a, it was a sequence that demanded so much attention. It was so complicated that. On top of it, to be to have to do it in bits and pieces was even more. We can't talk about sets without talking about production designer Stephen Scott. Well, I mean, the, the the conceptual collaboration took place really more between Del Toro and him. My my relation with the art department has to do more with in this case, and, and I don't know if that's if that's because is that's the British system had works, but but uh, it, it's it's pretty separated. And then you have the people that are actually the art directors that are. Dealing with specifically with sets and uh, and the onset people, so it is it is a little bit different than than of other experiences that I've had, for instance, in in Pan's Labyrinth or or, or movies that I've done here in the states. 
Did you have any input on how the sets were created? In the, in the process of design of those sets, we would have interaction and understanding what, or we would ask for this to be changed or we needed an opening for lighting here or closing this or the ability to move walls for when we did this and we do that. There is like a, an ongoing process to make, to make the set uh, friendly. I mean, I have to remind them in, in, but that's part of the conflict uh, between the cinematographer and the production designer throughout the history of film, I think, that you know, you're, you're, the films are there to be photographed, not to be visited by a, a school and sell tickets to visit the, the, the great construction or the great architecture of a set. The set is meant to be photographed. And there's, there's everything that comes with it. You know? So it has to be lit and it has to be and, and it has to work for the camera. Mike Wazell was the visual effects supervisor for the film. What was your relationship with him like? He had a very good, uh, very good crew, and he was always providing the understanding of what were his needs and understanding what it was that we were able to provide, and it was a good collaboration. How much of the look of Hellboy 2 was achieved in post? I mean, the DI, you fix things, you do windows to, et cetera, but basically the, 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 the lighting approach of the movie is, 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 is what it is. And the, the choices that were, that were made in the, in the shoot and the, the color palette that was taken care of in the shoot. We did something that is not, not necessarily common in, in many productions that we would do, we would time on the, in the set with, with some software that my gaffer has, and uh, we would take pictures and time them so the visual effects department would have these references of how that sequence, and then, you know, they would, those pictures would go to the visual effects houses so they would have a continuity with the, with the look of that sequence. Mm -hmm. So all that work was done also as we were doing the movie. Because so much of the look was already set, what kinds of adjustments did you need to make in the DI? Well, for instance, it was, it was the opportunity to keep a, a, a continuity of things within the sequence. Or from when you go from a sequence that it's a world on its own and go into another one to bridge it. Some things that were uncontrollable in the set, you end controlling in the DI, so you window those. You make uh, dissolve from one place to another, color dissolves or, or density dissolves. Things like that, things that, that are just allowing you to, uh, it's basically the, one of the big benefits of the DI uh, that, uh, from a traditional timing process. There are a lot of fantastical creatures and characters in the Hellboy films. How do, how do you approach lighting an actor with bright red skin or blue skin or no skin. The requirements of one are not necessarily the, the requirements of the other one. So it's very difficult to keep a balance and there was, it depends on, on the sequence and the shots, there's one that's going to suffer. You know, because um, the lighting requirements of Hellboy are not the same as, as Liz, for instance, or as Abe. I mean, one is blue, the other one is red. and the, Those are the extremes of the uh, of, of the of the primal colors. Um, 
then we had a character that had a, 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 a glass helmet on where we everything was reflected on him. We had to come up with solutions with that. But uh, over the years, of, uh, we have learned to, to deal with, with the prosthetic makeup. We've I've done a lot of movies that, that involve prosthetic makeup, and uh, it has its particularities. It has its, you have to really know how that latex react and how you can control here and that. And, and, and it's also hard to keep the continuity with, uh, because those, those makeups are destroyed and every day, and they are new every day. And you just hope that they're all going to be the same each day. You know? If there was a Hellboy, th if there's a Hellboy three, what do you think that film would look like? I, I think it would be pretty much the same, that same experience. It, it will really depend where this cars, where the, the story is going to take them, and what kind of spaces they're going to be in. But I think the movie is going to be. It, it, there is a very strong relationship between one and two, and then it will be between two and three. It it is. You know, unless they end in, in, in the moon, right? Who knows where the stories can take us? It will have, a, a, again, a parallel, a parallel reality that, that we have to create from scratch and, and, and design from scratch and, and make them belong there. So if there is a, whole, a Hellboy 3 that I hope there is, we will uh, address that and, and, uh, and, and we know that we can, we can find it. I feel very comfortable with that. Do you think you're going to work with uh, Del Toro again? Absolutely, yeah. What keeps you coming back? Well, we uh, we have a very long relationship. I mean, we're both from Mexico. We have our our cultural baggage and codes that are very well that flow very well. Uh, I, I we respect each other tremendously, and uh, I find that he has a you know I. He has a tremendous imagination, and I think he's a genius. Del Toro is capable of coming up with these concepts and these images of the creation of the characters that are, it is the first time that you as a viewer, in this time and age where we, you know, film has really seen practically everything. We've seen it all, right? And then, boom, here you are, here you have a movie where you can experience things that for the first time, and that is, that it's an incredible gift and that it's an incredible accomplishment, I think, of the movie. What role do you see the cinematographer playing in that process? We have to translate that into film. We have to capture that, design it, create it, create the atmosphere, create the, that parallel reality and, and, and make, it, make it the vehicle to, for the concept to flow into the audience and make it a, a, a sensorial experience. So it is a very heavily, it's not that it's, it's not like people can say, oh, it has great visuals. No, the visuals are really the language of the movie. And that is how I, I, I see my, my participation. That's how I see my work, that the, the images are at the service of the story. They are at the service of the drama. They are there to provide you with a story, with a story, it is the grammar of the film language. It's a good thing that Del Toro is such a visual director, then. Well, yeah, because it, it is, it is. He understands that the that that is is not a is not a play. You know, it's not the, the when you many times you read scripts and it's all dialogue, because that's the only way they understand to express things and communicate things, etc. 
The films that I, that I do with El Toro, are the language is really the visuals. It takes you to this. The, the dialogue is more, you know, for to, it provides pieces of information or etc. Or, 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 but it's really a story told with images. And that is, the, as a cinematographer, some, the, 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 the kind of movies that I pursue and that I, that I feel lucky to do. That was Guillermo Navarro, Director of Photography for Hellboy 2, The Golden Army. This has been the American Cinematographer Magazine podcast. Thanks for listening. Audio support for the podcast has been generously provided by Coffee Sound in Studio City, California. You can find them on the web at coffeysound.com. And you can find more podcasts and articles from American Cinematographer Magazine at theasc.com.